Zivie Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zivieowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's episode is sponsored by Poets and Writers, which is the absolutely essential go-to resource for creative writers. Founded in 1970, Poets and Writers is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Visit pw.org to get inspired, connect with others, and explore a treasure trove of trustworthy information about writing contests, literary agents, and more. I'm talking to Dr. Mark McConville, PhD, who's the author of Failure to Launch, Why Your 20-Something Hasn't Grown Up and What to Do About It. He is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Cleveland, Ohio. As a senior member of the faculty of the Gestalt Institute of Cleveland, he has lectured and taught widely about child development, parenting, and counseling. He currently lives in Shaker Heights, Ohio, with his wife and within visiting distance of his two children and seven grandchildren. Welcome, Dr. McConville, to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. That's so disappointing to hear that moms don't have time to read books. <laughs> I'm hoping they do. That's my my whole mission here is to help people get some to, book content. You're trying to lure them into it, aren't you? Yes, I'm trying. <laughs> Especially with books like yours, Failure to Launch, Why Your 20-Something Hasn't Grown Up and What to Do About It. So yeah, can, right. can you tell our listeners a little more about what this book is about other than its subtitle? Well, it, it's a book for parents, for sure. And specifically parents of kids who are, they're entering emerging adulthood, emerging adulthood being 18 to 30, roughly. And that first part of of emerging adulthood is usually referred to as the launching substage. And and that substage has actually a curriculum to it. There are things we want to see kids doing that we know if they're doing them, it portends well for where they're going to end up by age 30. And when they're not doing them, I encounter parents who are just perplexed because the fact is there is no handbook for how do you parent a 20-something. And this today's generation of parents are much more, I don't want to say saddled, but they they are engaged with their kids longer because kids need support longer, given all of the particulars about education and the economy. And so they're they're left still being close to the action, seeing their kid's behavior, but they don't, unless the kid is kind of doing it on his or her own, they're really sort of stumped as to how to intervene, how to exert influence, how to do it in a way that is constructive rather than just creating conflict and friction. So that's what this book is about. It's for those parents. It's funny, as you were talking about how parenting is now such a, it's such an active thing, right? You don't just stop being a parent because your child is past their teen years. There should really be books written by like 90-year-olds about how to parent their middle-aged children, you know? Because I think my grandmother still has troubles with my mom, you know? And she's like, you know, 70 and 95. So, you know, it just never ends, basically. Yeah. You're you're right. You think it's over, but mm -mm. I call it parenting and overtime. (laughs) Yeah, this uh, illusion of getting your kids to eighteen is 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 nothing. (laughs) You know, but what's very interesting though is when I started my career, the belief and and the solid belief among therapists is my specialty has always been adolescence. If we could get that kid to eighteen, they'll be fine. The world will take over the parenting. And the world, of course, is a much better parent because it it doesn't coddle and it it requires you to take your own initiative. And it was really, it was a very valid principle. We could just get those kids to 18. 
the adolescent trouble would evaporate. Well, that is not even close to true today, right? It's just not close to true. If you can get them to 30, you got a pretty good chance. <laughs> <laughs> Although I don't know. I know a lot of 30-year-olds who could use a little help. <laughs> That's right. But it can't be your responsibility forever. So when you talked about picking up on signs early that will put your teen in a good place later, how far back can we work? Like, can we start with, you know, my five-year-old and see like, what behaviors do I need or what can I watch out for? How early can you spot the signs that maybe they will not be launching? (laughs) I don't think you can spot the signs back then, but you can certainly, as a parenting model or parenting agenda, you can start as soon as they're able to take on even the, the most minimal responsibility Anything you do that supports initiative or accountability. So, you know, you your job was to set the table tonight. And look, we're ready for dinner and the table's not set. You get in there. I'll help you if you need. So that you're learning the lesson that just kind of blowing it off doesn't work very well in this family. Right? And initiative. You know, that kid brings home that project of something they're they're going to build a Rube Goldberg machine and you know, my kid would bring that home. and Boy, I could not wait to get to that assignment. And I wanted to know what kind of grade I got when it was over, right? But but those things where we hold back and we put ourselves in that subordinate supportive role. So that if the kid is learning initiative, right? And, and that's often when you see it, you just, you reinforce it. You have a kid, one of my granddaughters came home two years ago and said, I want to learn the ukulele. And we all kind of looked at each other and said, you know, we have zero musical ability in this family. (laughs) And then I don't know, unless she's going to follow in the steps of Tiny Tim, there's not a (laughs) tremendous amount of future. But but my daughter's response was, let's go get a ukulele and let's find a ukulele teacher. You know, you see that initiative. Now, she stayed interested for about six months and, and parents get discouraged, but that's okay learning to have initiative, right? That I have a curiosity or an interest and the environment responds in a way that's encouraging. You know, at some point, that same, that same, the ukulele player is now an utterly committed Irish dancer. (laughs) It's just brought home a trove of medals from a, a competition in a neighboring city. So it's just, it's the process of initiative that you're supporting. So those are the things I would say about early childhood. You have some responsibilities. It's your job to put your clothes in the chute. And as all parents know, if, if you have young children, it takes much more energy to do the parenting than it does to pick up the, the pajamas and put them in the chute yourself, right? Yep. You know, I I found it interesting, your whole section in the book on motivation, like parents saying, how do I get my kids to do that? How do I get my son to go to class in college? Or how do I get him to maybe stop drinking? Or how do I get her to drive a car better? Something, you know, all these little things. And you talk all about motivation. And actually, you referenced Daniel Pink, who was on my podcast in the past. That was very exciting. Wow. Yeah. So I'm impressed with myself. I'm such good. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little more about motivation and is it really something, can we, how do we foster motivation and not sort of force it down kids' throats, right? When we want them to do things, but I really, they have to do it for themselves. Yeah. Of course we, we look for, I mean, there are a number of answers to your question. One is you look for it where it grows in the wild. 
you know, your kid brings home a passion, like we said, right. a ukulele or Irish dancing, and you you foster that and you support it. Well, that that really cultivates the capacity to be passionate. 20 years from now, that it, child may be passionate about something quite different. So that's the that's the way you support in internal motivation. But let's face it, extrinsic external motivation is part certainly of parenting. You know, that child does not want to empty the dishwasher. It takes a parent that says, look, if you don't empty the dishwasher, then, you know, we're not, there's no no movie after dinner or something. So so we use external motivation and and kids then, they, you know, we hope over time they will internalize it. Many do, not all. But the problem is that's kind of our repertoire. And so now you've got a 22-year-old who is taking a semester off from college, and you realize he's taking the semester off. <laughs> he's, he's not doing much of anything. And so you, we, we, of course, rely on all the, the tried and true. We go back to the extrinsic. I'm going to try to encourage you. I'm going to try to inspire you. I'm going to maybe threaten you a little bit. I'm going to try to maybe present some consequences. And that tends to create, particularly with 20-somethings, more tension and conflict in the relationship. Because frankly, you don't have the same leverage you had. You know, at 16, you could say, you want the car keys this weekend? Then, you know, the, the leaves have to be raked. I'm sorry. You don't do your chores. You don't buy into the privileges. At 22, what shifts is, and I introduced a, a notion that comes out of Gestalt therapy uh, called creative adjustment, which is the fact that so much of what we learned in life, so much of what makes the world go around in adulthood, it's not stuff we're passionate for. I mean, you're lucky if you have some things you're passionate for, but you know, you, you I suspect, are passionate about this podcast. So, so the, it comes from within. But when you and I are done, you've got to go walk the dog right? You've got to pick up your, your daughter at ukulele practice. <laughs> you know, there's, there's all these things. And, and what that has to do with is necessity, right? And necessity is different. And so the, the phrasing I like is you can't get your 22-year-old to do something, but you can set up circumstances so your 22-year-old begins to get it, that he's got to do something himself. There's a story in the book that can I, I'd love to tell this story because it's one of my favorite. Please, go for it. Yes. Absolutely, a literally true story. A dad laments to me, and this was this was actually a personal friend, but he he laments to me that his 19-year-old, who tried culinary school but it didn't take, and he's a really sweet kid. He wasn't doing drugs or alcohol. Had a lovely girlfriend that the the parents really liked, and he was working a few hours a week for kind of neighbors helping out with landscaping, but he wasn't getting a real job. And the dad. I, he he said, "How do I get him to get out there and get a real job?" And and my conversation was, "Well, what bills does he have?" He said, "Bills? He doesn't have any income. How could he have bills?" And I said, mm, "No, actually, it works the other way around." And so he said, "Well, come to think of it, I went in with him on a used car because I figured if he's going to work, first of all, if he's going to look for a job, and then if he's going to get back and forth, he's going to need transportation." So they went in halvesies. I said, how's it working? He said, well, we got it about six months ago. He made most of his half of the first month's payment, and I haven't seen a penny since. <laughs> ah, 
Okay. And this is the classic dilemma for the parent of a 20-something. Like, I should just take that car away. But wait a minute. If I do, what's the likelihood he'll ever get a job? Right? And then if he does get one, I'm going to have to drive him back. So the parent is caught between a rock and a hard place. There's not a lot they can do. And I said, how's the payment system? How's it set up? Well, you know, bank loan, coupon book. Every month I say, hey, you got your check for $300? No, I don't. I don't. I don't. So dad writes the check for 600 bucks. I said, why don't you flip it around? Next month, give your son the coupon book and a check for $300. So the economics don't change at all. But what changes are the ground rules or the boundaries of the relationship. So somebody has to carry this dilemma, this problem, how to keep this car from being repossessed or, you know, whatever. Somebody has to own that. And the problem is that that was on the dad's side of the relationship boundary. And the getting him to do it was to put the dilemma on the kid's side. That kid had a full-time job within a matter of two or three weeks. <laughs> Love it. That's awesome. <laughs> it's a true story. And he said, he says, you know, at the end of the first month, he comes to me and says, Dad, can I borrow $150? And the dad said, he said, I did. He, he actually pulled his pockets inside out, said, you know, I'm tapped out at the moment. <laughs> That's creating necessity. And when you have necessity, you start, you, you, me, any of us, we connect the dots and we do something that we would not otherwise have been disposed or interested in doing. Sounds like the less you can enable your child at any age, the better, right? Yeah, I, I think always trying to pay attention to, you know, I like to call it the 49% rule. Like, you know, we're going to get this job done, but I want you to be the majority owner of this enterprise, this project, whatever it is. And I'm willing to help out and be a part of it be the supportive parent, supportive grandparent, but not if you're doing your part. If you don't care enough about getting that uh, hoverboard, <laughs> like one of my other granddaughters, if you don't care enough about it, I, it's not on my list. Right? I like how you said we have to go from being supervisors to consultants, right? Like we're sort of on the wings. <laughs> exactly what it is. Because everybody thinks, okay, we know children develop. There's a science called child development. Nobody realizes that parenting goes through the same kind of developmental sequential stages. And, and in each stage, I've written a technical paper about this that I won't get into the details, but at each stage, there's a different kind of contract or paradigm that has to do with two things. It has to do with power and it has to do with boundaries. So if I have a four-year-old, my four-year-old's business is my business. There's no such thing, you know, other than when they say, our, our, our granddaughters would say, I want privacy when they would go into the bathroom. Okay, that's, that's fair enough. But you don't, anything they're up to, you should be vigilant. You should be overseeing. You should be a helicopter, right? And the power, which is the responsibility, lays on the parent's side. So even when you concede power to the child, it's because you chose to do so. You let them choose an outfit, that's, that sort of thing. You know, I, I actually have a story that illustrates this sequence because I saw it in one afternoon from supervision in that first stage, supervision and caretaking 
into the second stage, which is negotiation, and into the third stage, which is consultation. And in each successive stage, the child has more of the power and you have less. And and what used to be your business is now the child's business. So my oldest granddaughter is making her first communion. And she comes down. Her mother tells me this story. I didn't see it. She comes down in the morning. She's got this beautiful white dress on. Everyone's excited. And she's got a pair of some slip-on shoes that, that are very comfortable. And her mother looks at him and says, uh-uh, <laughs> no, that, that is not how this works. There, there's a protocol for First Communion. She huffs and puffs a little bit. She goes upstairs and she comes down with whatever the beautiful shoes are that they had bought for her. And off we go to church and the, the whole business takes, takes place. And then afterwards, we come back to their house and cousins and family are gathering and she immediately goes to the slip-ons. And my daughter says, mm, we, we have to do photos. And that doesn't work for the photos. Well, they argue back and forth. And my, my daughter says, okay, I'll make a concession. If you'll keep them on, your shoes on for the photos, then you can switch to whatever you like. Right? So now they're negotiating. They're horse trading. right? So they do the photographs. And then my granddaughter goes and puts the slip-ons on, at which point my daughter is just a consultant. Like, you know what? I think they look kind of dumb, but <laughs> it's it's your call. It's not my call. So I, I just, I remember watching that thinking, oh my God, there they are. There's all three modes of parenting. And what happens developmentally is with children, you really must be the supervisor. So you decide when to negotiate and when to consult. But when you have an adolescent, you don't get to make that. Sometimes you, you're going to have to negotiate whether you like it or not because they are pulling some of their own weight. And so you, you horse trade. You, you, you give in on something provided that they commit to follow through with some responsibility. And then when you get past adolescence into emerging adulthood, you really want to become the consultant because a consultant who has plenty to say, lots of knowledge, lots of wisdom, but they have no power. They really are, you know, it's more of, it's the dad who says to his 19-year-old, have you gotten those job applications filled out yet? You know, I think you need to get on it because this job isn't going to wait around forever. That's, he has drifted back into being a supervisor. And I coach him to, to say something more like, I know you got a lot on your plate and job applications can be confusing. Lord knows I filled out enough of them myself. Let me know at any point if I can give you a hand with this, which is a, if you're on the receiving end of that, you're the kid. In the first example, you feel like a kid. But in the second example, you just feel affirmed as someone who's capable of, of, of owning the issue, of having initiative, right? You feel more grown up. This is excellent advice, even as a parent of tweens. And <laughs> this is fantastic. And I like how, you know, you're empathizing right away, right? Like you've been there and... Oh, you, yeah. So, I, so, and I, with, if you've got tweens, here's my, here's my tip. The thing that negotiating, if, if, if I'm a 12 or 13 or 14 year old and I have the experience that I can negotiate with you, you're my mom, I can get you to move off of your starting place and meet me halfway. I feel more enhanced. I feel more powerful and I understand that the way to get things is to go through you, to engage you, which is much better than just, I learned to be sneaky, right? When, when in, in my day, parents didn't negotiate, 
I was really good at being sneaky, you know, <laughs> but, but so, so your daughter or son comes to you about something, you know, I want to, I want to go to so-and-so's bar mitzvah and it's, it's, you know, 25 miles away. I don't know. You've, you've got some vague reluctance, but you know, you, you know, you're going to say yes. <laughs> you're much better off though, to play hard to get, to say something like, well, I don't know about this. I'm not sure that's a great idea. Let me hear why you think it's a good idea. And you make your kid make their case. Hmm, I, I don't know. You know, can you answer this question? for? So you make them kind of work up a petition. And then in the end, you say, well, you know what? I can see your point. And I, I think we're going to say yes to this, right? Okay, now I'm that kid. And I'm thinking like, yo, <laughs> <laughs> I, I did it. I got mom to change your mind. I, you know, and so I have more confidence in my reasoning ability, my verbal communication ability. I have more confidence in your ability to listen and actually be influenced by me. And that is a wonderful thing. And when you've got teenagers, if they feel like I can influence my parents, I have to work at it and I kind of have to play by the rules to do it you've got a much more cognitively mature kid. So you start cultivating it when they're tweens. That's play hard to get. And I feel like there's a fine line between negotiation and influence and then manipulation. I feel like sometimes the kids are trying to manipulate me and then if I capitulate, it's like a failure and then they feel like they have the power versus I'm developing their cognitive reasoning skills by this you know, insane conversation <laughs> we're having. Well, I think you've read my paper. Because <laughs> actually, I have this theory that negotiation is something that's learned in stages, right? So, so here I am. I am sitting watching the end of the Sunday afternoon football game. And you know I have a science project that I need to get done. And so you say, Mark, time to turn the game off because you have to get to your science project. And I say to you, no, 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 just... Let me watch the fourth quarter, and, and I'll, I promise I'll do it. And you say, okay, so if I let you watch the fourth quarter, then you'll get right on your science project? Yeah, 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 yeah. Do I? Of course not. <laughs> I'm at the beginning. I'm a neophyte negotiation. So for me, this was just a clever way of getting you to back off, right? Mm -hmm. So but, but you have to go down that path. And then the next step for the parent is turn the TV off now and come and empty the dishwasher. No, 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 I'll just let me finish this. No, 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 honey. We negotiated last week with the football game. You didn't get, I had to get all over you about the science project. We are not making any deals. I'm sorry, turn it off and get. So as the kid, this is a kind of recursive loop. The kid goes through and eventually the kid learns like, damn, I have to go empty that dishwasher because I told her I would. And they start to keep deals. It's, and I, it's a stage that I call quid pro quo, which is a term that's taken on all kinds of other meaning. But it's they learn, I can get what I want from you, but I do in fact have to give you something in return. But, but getting them to that is itself a kind of developmental achievement. They don't start there, right? right. And then right. Just, just to kind of give you some hope, the stage beyond that, right, is, is when they keep their word. And this, this is what Robert Kagan calls mutuality. And it tends to come 18, 19, 20. When they keep their word or they keep their deal, 
mostly because they value the relationship. And I, I told you, would do, you I would do it. I don't want to let you down. Your trust in me matters. And so, of course, I'm going to come through with it, which is a much more relational way of, of thinking and relating to your parent. But kids go through this sequence to get there. All right. I have some hope now. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, so, I'm, so, yeah. I'm so tickled. I was interested in what I think. Oh, my gosh. I'm totally interested. I feel like if I could have you just here on my computer via Skype at all times, I could just, you know, lobby my questions every day. <laughs> so I have my look into it. <laughs> so what made you write this book, Failure to Launch? You're, you know, you've been doing this for a while. You, you have this great position at your local, you know, you're running a whole center. You're like, you're this big guy. Why are you taking your time out to write this book? And why now? And why this, why this I, book? I did not set out to write a book. I can tell you that. I learned this thing in graduate school. I went to a, an extraordinary graduate program. And one of the things they made us do we had a two-year sequence where we're learning therapy, where some other graduate student was my unfortunate client. And what they made us do was keep journals. Now, I thought journaling was about the dumbest thing I'd ever heard of. But the journals they proposed were, you are to be writing about the things that are perplexing you in your therapy work and integrating them with the things that you're reading in, in the vast reading resources we had and integrating all of that with what you're hearing in lecture and discussion classes, and integrating all of that with your own neurotic craziness. <laughs> so you're trying to understand how all of that fits together. So I have in my cave of an office in my basement, a stack of notebooks that literally is six or eight inches high. And I have always used it when things come up in therapy. It's how I wrote my first book on adolescence. I didn't set out to write a book. There was nothing out there that told me how to really engage an adolescent into a constructive relationship. So I would write about it. I would write about kids who challenged me or perplexed me or who said something very enlightening. And I started to do the same thing as I began to get more and more referrals of 20-somethings who were presenting the clinical profile of adolescents. And that was, I've tried to date that somewhere around 2000, right around the early 2000s. And so I just did what I've always done is I would write three mornings a week as a kind of professional, personal reflection, writing about, you know, what the heck is going on here? How can I be helpful? Boy, that session yesterday was a mess. You know, I would just, I was wrestling with the issue. And over time, I began to understand it and I began to do better work and I began to find language for what I was understanding. And there was a time, and this was probably 12 years ago, where I said, you know what? I may have a book here. And it felt like having a big amorphous block of marble. And, and it was in there. The statue was in there. I had to figure out a way to, to get it out. And so I'm an incredi incredibly slow worker. Some people accuse me of being perfectionistic. I don't think so. I think I just really care very deeply. There's not a word in that book that I don't believe in. And, and I feel whether nobody buys it or everybody buys it, I feel very proud of it because it's my voice. It's what I know. And so then I started that long project of trying to craft it into something that could work. And with a lot of help and support and encouragement, failure to launch. <laughs> Amazing. Launched. Which launched, yes, of course. <laughs> I like how at the end of the book also you include a letter to the 20-something. So it's almost like yeah. 
a shortcut for parents. Like, I've read this whole book and this is great, but here, I'm just going to give you this letter from this doctor in the book and you read this now and see how that helps. Yeah. <laughs> and, and look, I'm realistic. Like, what are the odds that that kid is going to read that? And so, as you know, in about the second paragraph, I say, look, when somebody gives me something to read, I kind of smile politely and then toss it in the trash can. So, you know, if that's what you do, I totally get it. <laughs> no hard feelings. Good luck. <laughs> but but then I say, but give me three pages. Just see if I can get your interest with three pages. So I loved writing that, I have to say. And I gave it to a couple of 20-somethings who did not hesitate to edit the daylights out of it. I bet. <laughs> you know, the first one said, this is way too long. Nobody's going to read anything this long. <laughs> but so, yeah, it was it was fun to do. And I I don't know if, you know, I guess if I ever get an email from a kid who says I read that and it was useful, I will do somersaults. But I think, at the, it, you know, I, I really thought as a kind of oblique communication, if parents read it, it's like this is a different way to think of and speak to and understand your kid empathetically. So I, I really had a kind of double motive. And having just survived the book process and now with your book launching, do you have any advice to other authors? Well, you know, the, the advice, I love reading writers on the subject of writing. It's just something I've always, Annie Dillard, I'm, an, I'm just an absolute, uh, I'm enthralled. I remain enthralled with her. John Updike. And, and you know, the, what they say basically is write. You have to write. And I, I've had a lot of young clients who sort of, they had aspirations to write. I say, so are you writing? Well, no. I mean, I, I started a short story last summer. Well, the fact is, you have to build writing into your routine the way some people build exercise into their routine. And it means you've got to sit down and write on the day when you feel as profoundly uninspired as you could ever be. But it's on your calendar and you do it. I have, honest to God, if I were to show you my the journal that I spoke about, that there are countless entries that start with something like, hmm, <laughs> followed by an ellipsis. I have no idea what to do today. My brain is dead. This is going to be a waste of time. You know, I learned to write in stream of consciousness, which of course is like priming a pump, right? But the fact is you've got to commit to the time and the energy of writing. That's the first thing. And then What's the second thing? <laughs> tell, tell the truth. Tell what you know. A lot of it is finding, you know, when, when I write, I write like most people do with an audience. And it's very distracting. If you're a people-oriented person, the next thing you know, I'm writing to some, I'm, I've got some critical audience and I'm bullshitting my way through and it's not making any sense. And learning, for one thing, to write just to myself was like learning to meditate. It was very difficult to do. Once I had something to say, I would change it. And I would have a, I would think of a group of parents from one of the schools where I consult. And I love talking to those groups of parents. They're so interested. It's like talking to you. They're interested. They seem to get what I'm saying. And I would write like they were listening. And, and that was very helpful. But, but probably, so tell the truth, find your audience. The other very concrete thing is find a support group. Find a writer's group. It just makes all the difference in the world. 
you've got someone that you're meeting with them in two or three weeks and you ha- you, ha- you don't have anything and you'll go to the meeting and confess, I don't have anything. And you will still walk out of the meeting inspired to get back to your writing desk. So I think that the two things I'd say is you've got to make time and you probably need a, a writer's group. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for all of this advice, not just on writing, but on raising kids from you know age four to tweens to 20-year-olds. And thanks for the framework of, of parenting and going through yeah. our, own, our own phases ourselves and having to navigate those. And now we have a, a guidebook. So thank you. <laughs> well, I have to say, you have been great fun to talk to. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thanks. I'm so glad. <laughs> you too. All right. Thank you. All right. Take care. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks so much. Today's episode has been sponsored by Poets and Writers. Visit pw.org to get inspired, connect with other writers, and explore a treasure trove of information about writing contests, literary agents, and more. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 